You ever, you ever eat an egg? Never. <laughs> You've never had an egg? How do you like your eggs? I was going to ask you how you like your eggs. I like them uh, in the shell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like them. I actually, I love eggs regardless of the way they're prepared. So you like all kinds of eggs? Yeah. I grew up with pretty much solo scramble, like only scramble. Yeah. And then as I got older and I found out you could cook eggs over easy and sunny side up, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. I'll have those. And they were good. My favorite kind of egg, I think, is soft boiled. Soft boiled? Yeah, it's like the most pretentious way you could make an egg. Is that like the white is hard boiled and the and the yolk is not? You know, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's it. That's How does that go? Do you, do you see bite into it expecting and you initially get a nice firm sometimes the yolk is a little bit harder than runny but it's it's mm. good i've never had soft boiled i have to try that sometime <laughs> what a terrible uh, i mean it, it makes sense for us but no one's gonna know what we're talking about eggs matter in this podcast you ever have an eggs benedict yeah i love eggs benedict very good we'll talk about it later you, you guys will understand <laughs> how's your quarantine steven how's your quarantine it's emotionally damaging. <laughs> is it really? No, it's fine. It is strange, though, just um, seeing even less of people out on the streets, you know? I bet you love that. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> but it's weird. It's different. It feels like a parallel universe. It does. Like we're in a multiverse. Almost like in The Leftovers, when a certain amount of a population gets transferred to another world, and she's only there with like a tenth of everyone that was on the other world. But that's not established if that actually happened or not, right? And that's part of the beautiful ambiguity yeah. of that series of that, that David Lindelof made. Yeah, full By circle. <laughs> Such a good show. Great show. Talking about The Leftovers, in case we didn't say the name of the show. Wow, it's been, it's been 32 years, right? Since the last podcast? Since the subject of the last podcast. Oh, yeah. Last time we did the Watchmen comic, as I recall. Yeah, and to pull a line from Twin Peaks The Return, it is happening again. Nothing ever ends, Stephen. Nothing ever ends. Except this podcast. Where do we even start? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't know. I think we start with the mind behind it all. Alan Moore. And that's why we did last week's. You and I both think that this series might be one of the best things to come out of the last decade, maybe in all of motion picture, but especially in television. Yeah. That and Twin Peaks, The Return. <laughs> yeah. Probably. I mean, it, unless you have others that you can add. No. I And I consider Showtime, who made Twin Peaks, The Return, as sort of like part of HBO. So HBO has really, in the last five to ten years, been creating a whole other level of television, I think. Mm-hmm. And Watchmen is just the most recent example of that. 2019 was just a good year for media. That's true. They had Chernobyl on there, which got a lot of award recognition but what what makes this so good do you think <laughs> you think what makes it so good what do you think what do you think makes it so good is it good i'm talking about the show the watchman series yeah uh so many things make it good it's incredible on its own like the writing and the production that all the technical aspects of it it's shot really well but also it's incredibly relevant for our modern world and today, just like the original comic was in 1985, 86, socially, politically, economically, Damon Lindelof did a really nice job continuing those themes and evolving them to fit the world 30 years later. And a lot of the same stuff is there, the violence and the, the darkness, 
but it's just, it's a little bit different the way they're able to express those themes. Yeah, exactly. I think that the care and love that went into crafting and creating this story and the respect for the world and characters uh, that the story was based off of is why we went into great detail on the last podcast so that you can all, as listeners, appreciate a little bit more what an accomplishment this series was. The HBO Watchmen series wasn't just good because it was well-made and good storytelling, but it is also good because it respects the source material that it came from. And as we know from many remakes and sequels and similar genre films, that is very hard to do. Yeah, especially for that amount of time that's passed, 30 to 40 years, there's not a lot of pieces of pop culture that I can think of that had such a rewarding and satisfying sequel that far down the line. I think the only one I can think of off the top of my head is Blade Runner, something that so honored the original, Mm -hmm. and yet the sequel was completely worthy on its own merit, and it could stand on its own legs. 100%. That and the Saved by the Bell remake. Of course. Yeah. And Fuller House. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um... The person who was put in charge of this great task is none other than Damon Lindelof. He was the co-creator and executive producer slash showrunner, along with Carlton Cuse for Lost, which is my personal favorite television show. I have a Lost poster in the office that we're recording right now. And another series on HBO that a lot of people like called Leftovers uh, that we were talking about, which is also worth checking out, I think, if you guys have the time. For sure. Gabe and I are huge fans of his for his style and the kinds of content he usually ends up making. He definitely has like a look... Uh, like a feel theme that he follows. He is self-described as taking from David Lynch pretty heavily. Uh, David Lynch is the creator of Twin Peaks and many more dreadful, suspenseful, existential works of art. Uh, Damon Lindelof follows in suit, also creating his stories to ask the difficult questions and confront the big ideas that we all have throughout our lives. For example, and I'm generalizing here, Lost asked the question, When we feel lost, how do we become found or what gives us purpose? And taking from what people have described as one of their least favorite works of his, Prometheus, the prequel to Alien, asked, where did we come from and where are we going? And then Leftovers, which was the most recent work before Watchmen, asked the question, how do you move on or let go when you have lost something that felt like a piece of you? And Watchmen might be his most ambitious venture yet, because like I said, he not only felt like he needed to make it good, but needed to make it great. I think he he accomplished his his mission. And he, I mean, you're probably going to mention how he didn't initially come onto the project when they asked him, right? Yeah. Because he needed everything to feel like it was appropriate, the timing and the material. Mm -hmm. He felt such a personal connection to the story because the comic was something he read when he was younger. That helped shape not only his passion and love for storytelling, but also his worldview. He also respected Alan Moore's stance and belief that there should never be a sequel or adaptation made of Watchmen. And Damon felt so strongly about this that he actually said no to making the series, I think two times before HBO circled back around a third time and asked him again when he realized that HBO was going to make this with or without him. And he decided at least if he was in charge of it, he loves and respects the material so much that he could at least over see it being made semi-decently and hopefully because of his attachment with the material at an early age also with an inkling as much care that alan moore put into creating the original do you think alan moore would be proud of what damon's done you know i thought about that and i personally feel like this was a near perfect sequel 
And anyone who actually enjoys Watchmen probably would enjoy this television series. And even though Alan Moore is so dogmatically against a sequel ever being made, I think if he was a little bit more open-minded than he is, that he would appreciate it as well. Yeah. I think if nothing else, he would appreciate how ambitious Damon and his team were in creating a story that was simultaneously both so original and yet a very nice continuation of the characters. Yeah, 100%. It was at this time that Damon Lindelof accepted to be the showrunner of the series that he released a personal statement that addressed the fans of Watchmen everywhere. And this statement was written in the exact same style of the original graphic novel, particularly issue four, the Dr. Manhattan-centric issue. This was a welcomed letter for not just the words he was saying, but the style in which it was written mirrored that of the beloved comic book. Uh, giving fans hope that Damon Lindelof's Watchmen series might actually be good. And then I'm going to read an excerpt from that letter. You tried to get Damon Lindelof to read an excerpt, but he didn't get back to us I emailed I emailed Damon Lindelof's people because I wanted him to read this because it just made sense. Felt but, right. But uh, no dice. We're a very tiny podcast. One day when we're big, we'll be able to get him back. But hopefully you can hear the passion and respect for Watchmen and and every word that he writes. Dear fans of Watchmen, Hello there. My name is Damon Lindelof, and I'm a writer. I'm also the unscrupulous bastard currently defiling something that you love. But that's not all that I am. I am a 12-year-old boy being handed the first two issues by my father. You're not ready for this, he growls with a glint of mischief in his eye. My parents recently divorced, and he has gone rogue. I am watching my father haggle with a man in a wheelchair. I am 15 years old, and we are at a comic book convention in New York City. My father finally harangues the merchant down to $30 for a guaranteed authentic screenplay of Watchmen, soon to be a major motion picture. Another man offers me the opportunity to adapt Watchmen for television. I am 40 now. I tell him someone else asked me to do this a year ago, and I declined. I tell him that Alan Moore has been consistently explicit in stating that Watchmen was written for a very specific medium, and that medium is comics, comics that would be ruined should they be translated into moving images. The Another Man pauses for a moment, then responds, Who's Alan Moore? I am 23 and living in Los Angeles. My father flies out from New Jersey for my birthday and gives me a present, a new edition of the graphic novel that is Watchmen. Yet Another Man offers me the opportunity to adapt Watchmen for television. Just a pilot, he says. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I am 43 now. I crack the door, and now I'm a hypocrite too. I am standing over my father's hospital bed. I am 29, the last age of which I will consider myself young. The breathing tube was removed two hours ago, and they said he wouldn't last longer than 15 minutes. I am 45, and I am writing a letter to the fans, the fans of Watchmen. It's unnecessarily wordy and an exercise in oversharing, but nothing gets people on your side more than telling them about the moment your father died. So from here he goes on for about three more pages, writing more directly to the fans, and he makes a case for why he is the right person for the job. He apologizes, he says 
He has an immense amount of respect for Alan Moore. He says he's compelled to create this. He calls himself a true fan and then discusses why he loves television. He compares what he is doing to how the New Testament did not erase what occurred in the Old Testament, but how it expanded on it. And then he expresses hope that maybe there is a part of the fans of Watchmen who want to experience something sort of amazing. He talks briefly about what is to come in concept. And then he signs the letter with respectful hubris, Damon. So yeah, that style of him speaking, I am this person and then I am also this person. It's it's a little bit transcendent out of time. Similarly to in the last podcast to how we were talking about how Dr. Manhattan is able to see all aspects of his timeline. So not only is he an aged Dr. Manhattan, but he's also a young boy. And at the same time, he's a lover. And at the same time, he's a creator. At the same time, he's a scientist. And so he's all these things at once. And so Damon Lindelof was mirroring that style on this letter, not only to say that you're in safe hands with me because I appreciate Watchmen, but he's also saying he has all of this sentimental and personal attachment to the comic book, which I thought was brilliant yeah i think for that reason he was the perfect man for the job he said before and i don't think he was being hyperbolic that watchman the comic was sort of the definitive thing for him as a kid that set him in his style of right writing and filmmaking because it mainly with the non-linear storytelling and that's been evident in most of what he's produced over the years specifically the television shows so it feels in a way, like this is what he's been training for his mm-hmm. whole life was to create this. So that letter was very reassuring as a fan that he was going to treat the material with a lot of respect. Totally. And HBO basically gave him free range to do anything that he wanted in the world of Watchmen. And he chose to make a sequel because he could have done anything. He could have made a prequel. He could have interlaced a, a simultaneous timeline that would have coincided with that current timeline. Interesting. I didn't realize he had carte blanche on the... Yeah. He didn't just have to make a sequel, but that's what he chose to do, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I think they were excited to give him basically the blank check, though. I think in an interview, he was talking about how they never really said it was a blank check, but he told them how ambitious he was going to go with this series. Right. And then when he showed them the pilot, they were simultaneously both uh, shock and awe. It was like, oh, wow, you've you really went for the stars on this, but we're ready to support you with this. Yeah, and, and to think about even he could have done multiple seasons and he could have done, you know... He had a franchise waiting for him. What if Dr. Manhattan was around during 9-11 and, you know, all the war in Iraq and all that stuff? You know, that would have been an interesting way to go. But instead, he decided to jump 32 years in the future to now. Did you see how he was... Because we talked about the timing of this whole thing for him creating the show, coming off of Leftovers, and what he was influenced by at the time and how he was reading a lot of... Because he's very active politically, I think. Mm. Um, And he was reading essays on specifically one he quoted. I think it was someone from The Atlantic named Coates had written an essay on the case for reparations and talking about all racial history of the nation and stuff like that. So moving into Watchmen off of Leftovers, he felt like it was the perfect place to make the story Mm -hmm. starting in Oklahoma, you know, a hundred years ago and then moving forward. Yeah. I I didn't read that, but that's really interesting. In this particular 
sequel that he decided to make, you know, 32 years later, he's tackling many different questions and themes here. Has the comic book tackled a very heavy, controversial, sociopolitical theme of the Cold War and what was prevalent at that time? Damon also wanted to tackle a hot button topic that exists today, which is racism, as you said. I that, mean, it's always existed. It's a, I feel like it's part of the identity of this country. You're totally correct. I despite, agree. Despite like... But I think, <laughs> I think with a lot of awareness, I guess you could say, arising with things like the, the modern Me woke culture. Yeah, the, the modern yeah. woke culture. That's nice. I don't, I don't really care for the expression woke, but the sentiment that it's trying to arouse, I guess you could say, I completely... I think know. it's almost like taking it out and putting it back on the table. Yeah. Uh, and in front of people. I actually had to Google woke the other day just to find out what it was really supposed <laughs> to mean. That's amazing. And it was essentially, yeah, we're just being aware... Yeah. And cognizant of all this racial disparity and not just racial, but, you know, across the spectrum, whether it's social or, you know, some kind of economic difference. Yeah. And the effect it has. It's just awareness, really. Stay woke. Stay woke. But so, yeah, he wanted to tackle racism. It's the heaviest through line in this show, I would say, similarly to how the theme of of the cold war or the impending quote unquote end of the world was in the watchman comic yeah both extremely i guess you could say political in their own way yeah in their own time apart from the character development that exists with their respective timelines and the issues that they're dealing with racism is the prevailing theme that is the motivation for some and development for others through pain or privilege but it's it's the prevailing theme found in this HBO Watchmen series and Damon and his team of writers and people who helped develop the show took a huge risk. I think when creating this story and I think that it is one of the things that makes this HBO miniseries so outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. It also has that signet. You talked about, I think a few minutes ago, the, the sort of the look and the feel of the aesthetic that Damon Littleoff has in mm-hmm. his shows, at yeah. least coming from the leftovers, how it feels very, real and yet surreal at the Mm -hmm. same time, Mm -hmm. especially in something like this, where you're dealing with superheroes more or less. Uh, And like how everything is kind of, even outside of the aesthetic, just everything is kind of absurd. And I love that. And I love that Damon Lindelof has really embraced that since the leftovers, since like the second and third season of that show where he's willing to take those risks and just do crazy stuff, throw it all at the wall, but do it so well that it always sticks. Or at least sticks 99% of the time. Yeah, yeah. Except for the third act type stuff like we were just talking about. Yeah, a lot of people give him flack, even still to this day. And I think at this point it's more of a meme because we live in a day and age of meme culture and so many people just willing to rush to outrage where they, they don't take a second look at things. Like, I'm sure if I put a person who says, oh, Lost was a mess in a room with Steven here... Oh Steven would be able to systematically disassemble their thought process and show <laughs> them that this show is really, from start to finish, uh, incredibly well thought out yeah. and designed. And I, you can say that with a lot of his shows, but some of his movies are kind of hard to defend, like the way he wrote Prometheus. I, I'm so in love with Ridley Scott's Alien franchise that Prometheus, had, there were a lot of things about that that didn't land for me, but there are still parts of it that I love. But with his shows, yeah. at least... What he's done with the Watchmen, since that's what we're talking about (laughs) today, I think he's really learned from his mistakes in the past, and Mm -hmm. he's gotten to a point where he really is a master of the craft. To not to stroke him off too much, but he's really he's really 
perfected his style, I think. Yeah, I think he's always gone for super ambitious themes. And yeah. and those are the things I think that have always carried through and that make up his style or the themes that he has. A lot of those themes are really him or humanity's existential questions that they have about what it means to, to be and be here with other people and, you know. Yeah, just to exist as a person. Yeah. And I think that's what has always drawn people to Damon Lindelof stuff, but it's nice to see that now we're at the point where uh, everyone is uh, on the same page with they, they love how he's able to close his stories and to wrap them all up in the third act or the final episode or the last chapter. Watchmen particularly ends in such a beautiful way because it is simultaneously perfect closure for the story that the season told in and of itself and for you know this 30 or 40 year saga that's been going on. But also it's there's ambiguity and it's sort of open-ended in case someone ever wanted to continue with this universe and with these characters, there's room for that. Yep. Even just the, I can, I can see the final shot of the show in my head and I'm just like, <laughs> it's so, it's so good. Yeah. I kind of hope they don't though. You know, yeah. like I, well, I think in 30 years time we can take it back up again and we'll have someone in the next generation, someone born in the year 2000 who was inspired by Lindelof, just like Lindelof was inspired by Moore. Right. And they'll be inspired by both, probably, if they really know the material. Mm -hmm. And then they can go on and make something incredible for the time. Assuming we're all still here in 30 years, who knows? I don't know. It'll be cool to see. I think that three-decade breathing room is something like we talked about that you, you don't see every day, but it's really cool when it's able to be done well like that, like with Blade Runner. Yeah. So apart from Damon Lindelof being in my opinion, amazing. Uh, another standout of this whole series and that, that really spoke to the tone, I think I just want to mention our Trent Reznor and Atticus Rose's oh. score. Yeah. And <laughs> how amazing uh, their the music was. Um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. But their score in Watchmen is unbelievable and really creates the tone that you experience when you're watching it. It feels like another character. Because yeah. it's so unique, I guess. In the first three or four episodes, I don't know if you remember me saying when, because we were all watching it week by week here. You weren't sure how to feel, right? I felt that it was really taking you out of it. Like it was almost distracting because it was so good. It felt almost tonally different from what you were seeing on the screen. And I felt that it just kind of took you out of it. But now looking in hindsight and coming back full circle, and after you see all of the nine episodes together, I think it really does create quite an experience. It sounds very unusual. It is jarring initially. I think everybody probably felt that way. Yeah. I think even Damon, when I was like researching... The, the production of this show, he talked about how he was, he never wants to work with the same composer uh, twice in a row because mm. he wants to keep himself kind of on his toes. Fresh. Yeah. Not get too comfortable. So, mm -hmm. you know, he loved what Max Richter did with the leftovers, but he wanted something different and he wanted to try something new. And he would, he thought Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross would be great. So he got his people to contact them. And simultaneously, the day of, two hours earlier, his agent or producer or whoever told him that they just had contacted them saying they would love to work with Damon Lindelof if any opportunity arose. Oh, how funny. Because Trent and Atticus had been doing scores for a while now. And I, and I know that Damon Lindelof, also being a huge Twin Peaks fan, just heard Trent Reznor's stuff in Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. That's funny. Also incredible. Yeah. Um, so they got to working with each other. And just like we talked about 
several podcasts ago with Hilder's score for the Joker, Atticus and Trent composed. What's Hilder's last name again? <laughs> I can't remember. It starts with a G. Okay, keep going. Uh, Trent and Atticus composed um, a lot of music before they had even started production on the pilot or the first episode. And they sent that music to Damon, and Damon played that music on set. Set. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with um, the writers and, and the crew and the actors. And that sort of established the tone of the show in its own way, just like it did with the Joker. So it's really interesting to see. That's awesome. And that doesn't happen a lot, no, as far as I know, yeah. as a filmmaker. It, it, it doesn't happen often. Yeah. It does happen semi-frequently, but not often. And I think it just goes to show in this case how important the score was for this series. And it really is, you can find it on streaming platforms now. There's three volumes of it, and it's all really good. Yeah. And we're going to be playing a lot of it throughout this podcast. You might have already heard it. I don't know. <laughs> But I'm definitely going to be weaving it throughout this podcast. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk about the series, the show, the show. Warning: The Federal Communications Commission has determined the following content to be emotionally harmful. Young children should not view this content under any circumstances, even if supervised by a parent or guardian. The views and opinions expressed, including the depictions of persons of color and members of the LGBTQA plus community do not reflect any official policy or position of the U.S. government. This program contains graphic language, violence, nudity, misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism, hate crimes, and depictions of sexual assault. Be advised. At this point, we're going to get into the story and the events and then the breakdown uh, of the characters, which is really the meat and heart of the story. So this is where you would stop if you don't want spoilers. So spoiler warning, Gabe, spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. There it is. Please leave now. Nostalgia. And don't come back until you're ready to be spoiled. Because it's extremely hard to talk about this show without talking about the events and the characters. Yeah. I even setting it up initially, it'll start to reveal. Just so you all know, even before the Watchmen series premiered on HBO in the first episode, even the trailers didn't give away that much or talk about who the characters were. So really even talking about the characters or anything at all is spoilers territory. So anyway, spoiler warning. <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait. We'll be here when you come back. Uh, all right, Gabe. It's at this point that spoilers. Spoilers are off. Spoil- Spo- or spoilers are back on. Yeah, this, we're going back into the spoilers. Spoilers now. Okay. As the comic book had, as we said last podcast, an excerpt or artifact at the end of each issue. From like in-world media, right? Like a book from the Watchmen universe. Yep. It should be said so at the outright before we get into the actual events. Just because I think this is interesting that those things would deepen the story after the end of each issue of what had gone on before that time period and gave more context to the main storyline. In a sort of ingenious way, there is a very minor character that shows up in some of the episodes in this series named Dale Petey. 
And they started to post articles and artifacts that he could hypothetically be finding in the series online after each episode aired on a directory on the HBO website. And they called it PDpedia. And this included letters from the FBI, articles from cultural heritage centers, news clippings, memos that Dale would write himself, uh, pieces of evidence, pamphlets from various fictional companies that were in the show. It's super cool and a great resource to add to the mythology if any of you are interested in checking it out. It definitely is just like fun. It's very, very fun. Yeah. It's, it's also something that Lost did when Lost was coming out. Did they? There was all this Dharma Initiative stuff that just came online one day. And it was just like the Dharma Initiative was real. And That's so cool. They, it was like brainwashing videos and stuff like that. It was super fun. Yeah. It's, it's huge for world building because it's not only fun and extra material that you can check out if you're a big fan of the show. Mm-hmm. But it also it, it tells you a lot about the show that you might not have picked up on for instance like who this character really was what their past is so it'll clarify things you were possibly unclear about watching the show yeah it also alludes to characters that may not have even appeared in the show but you were wondering about yeah rip dan (laughs) it's really helping to see him (laughs) that's okay in 30 years he'll be like dead by then when he gets out of jail So I'll just say this. The point of Watchmen is not the actual events, but the main heroes or the characters that really are barely involved with saving the day. But the point is to explore the lives and perspectives of those characters. The point is not just the events. So we could pretty much summarize what happens in the course of these nine episodes in, you know, one paragraph. So here is that paragraph. (laughs) You mean like in incredibly simplified terms, what happened in the show? Yeah. The new show continues the events of the comic that we went over in the last podcast. So in the 90s, Vite helps the actor we all know, Robert Redford, become president. Redford introduced more liberal policies, some of them are called Redfordations, that give tax breaks to victims of racial violence. In response to this, right-wing extremists emerge like the 7th Cavalry, a group of white supremacists wearing Rorschach masks. Rorschach from the comic, as you may remember, is the character who dogmatically believed in what he was doing and died for that cause. The Seventh Cavalry works with Cyclops, an offshoot of the KKK. Senator Joe Keen and Police Chief Judd Crawford are secretly Cyclops members. In 2016, they orchestrated an attack on the police called White Knight. Because of this, a new law passed so that the policemen wear masks. Joe Keen uses this conflict between the 7th Calvary and the cops to gain political power. In the first episode of this series, in the year 2019, a 105-year-old man named Will kills Judd, and Lori Blake, formerly Lori Jespizek, and new characters Angela Abar and Wade Tillman begin to investigate this. Meanwhile, it turns out that Dr. Manhattan isn't on Mars like the government wants everyone to think. He is in Tulsa in human form as Cal Abar and has had a life with Angela Abar for the last decade. Joe Keen and Cyclops capture him and try to take his power. A now older Ozymandias, or Adrian Veidt, has been stuck on a utopia that Dr. Manhattan created on Jupiter, hating his life. Then another new player, Lady True, who is also the daughter of Veidt, saves him and brings him back to Earth. In the finale, Lady True, in an effort to prove that she is better and more intelligent than her father, kills Cyclops and tries to take Dr. Manhattan's powers for herself. 
Then she is killed by her father using frozen squids raining from the sky as hellfire. Dr. Manhattan dies. Angela Abar consumes an egg that may or may not contain the powers of Dr. Manhattan. So by the end of the story, she may or may not have become the new Dr. Manhattan. Hey, hi, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the events of the 2019 series from yeah. HBO. In a summary, that's what happens in the story. Yeah, very succinct. A lot of that probably didn't make sense. But if you watched it, you're probably like, yep. Yeah. So where do we go from here? So from this point, like I was saying, the point of Watchmen is not about the actual events, but it's about the characters behind the events. So we're going to get into the characters because the characters and the character development and why they do what they do is the most interesting part. And Damon Lindelof knew that. And so he and his team wrote these characters in such a way that made them extremely engaging, I think. And it's about the journey, right? Not the destination. As he learned from his predecessor, since his style was so largely self-admittedly came from Alan Moore, Lindelof sort of developed his style from Alan Moore about having characters with depth, that that's the focus of the story, not the events, really. So we're going to go over each character. And um, like we did in the last podcast, I'm going to play what I think is each theme from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for each character, along with maybe a line or two. From you think you, the show. You think you've identified them? Yeah. For most of the characters? For most of them. Or if it's not a theme, it's, it'll be a song that played in telling their story. Yeah. So, Gabe, how many main characters are there? Nine. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many characters are in this HBO Watchmen series? There's a lot of characters in the show. There were six main characters in the original. How many main characters are in this HBO Watchmen series? The series focuses on nine, about nine main characters. <laughs> Who's at the top of the list? I think Angela Abar is at the top of the list. She is the sort of the focus of the story. We see the world mostly through her eyes, kind of like Rorschach in the original. Not that she would be the Rorschach of this But in a lot of ways, she is. She's very dogmatic in a sense. She's fighting for justice and what she believes justice is. That's sort of her pursuit as a character. She quit her job because of the White Knight to become a baker. But then she's moonlighting as another, you know, a masked vigilante. She is currently a masked undercover detective of the Tulsa PD, who is spearheading the investigation of the 7th Cavalry over the course of the series. She was born and raised in Vietnam. Since Vietnam is now a state, the 51st state in this world of the United States, she grew up there until her parents were murdered in a bombing. So she grows up under most of the care of her grandmother. She becomes a cop in Vietnam in her pursuit of justice. And then that's where she meets her fate. Yeah, a god walks into a bar. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Manhattan comes to Angela in the late 2000s and they fall in love via fate and predestination. And then they spend the next 10 years happily together, most of which Dr. Manhattan is completely oblivious to who he is. She moved to Tulsa PD with Cal, her husband, or secretly Dr. Manhattan, and she became a detective. And then, like you said, Christmas Eve of 2016 is the White Knight and the 7th Cavalry Group murder most of her department including her partner, after which she adopts his children so they don't become orphans, and they raise them as their own. Then the events transpire that I just said. Yeah, over the course of the show. By the end, she may or may not be the person who 
takes on the powers of Dr. Manhattan. And the last frame of the series is her attempting to walk on water because that was something that she was so amazed by Dr. Manhattan doing. When I grew up, I was a police officer there until I moved here to Tulsa. I was one of the cops who got attacked on the white night. And that was before police officers were allowed to wear masks. So the bad guys, they, they knew who I was and they knew where I lived and they came to my house and they shot me. I figured making cakes and cookies was better than getting shot. So I quit the police force and opened up a bakery. So who's next on the list? Her husband. Calais Bar is her husband, who was a completely different person 15 years prior. The Calais Bar that the rest of the world knew died, and she appropriated this dead man's body for Dr. Manhattan. And John Osterman became Cal Abar. Very strange thing to do, but they had to make it work. Well, she, she preferred seeing kind of a normal human instead of the blue. Also, then they wanted to keep their relationship clandestine. So he's like, choose your body. <laughs> She's like, I like this guy. So in the events of Dr. Manhattan becoming Cal Abar and in relationship with Angela, Angela couldn't really handle, and we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast. It's just like his relationship with Lori. Dr. Manhattan's all-knowing, sentient knowledge of his own timeline made him very kind of a passive character and very annoying for anyone that's in relationship with Dr. Manhattan. And because Angela is so annoyed and frustrated, they wanted to just have some time to spend with one another and not hate each other and constantly getting in fights because of Dr. Manhattan's passivity. Yeah, his kind of blasé nature. Yeah, I can see how it would be very frustrating. And so Dr. Manhattan goes to Ozymandias, Vite, and they talk about something else. But in the same conversation, Vite created a device to take away Dr. Manhattan's powers by inserting this tiny device that looks like the symbol on his head, the symbol of hydrogen. And they cement it into his skull, essentially. Angela just shoves that right into his forehead. (laughs) And... Like, like sponge and then cake. he and then he becomes unaware of his past and unaware that he was Dr. Manhattan and he just takes on the identity of Cal Abar for about eight years I think or something yeah so, it was most so. of the decade and so they live out their lives in Tulsa just like a normal couple except that Angela's moonlighting is sister night after 2016 up until then she was just a detective on the force or a cop working the beat and then the events of this story make it so that Angela has no other choice but to wake Dr. Manhattan up by basically bashing in his skull with a hammer things we do for love yeah (laughs) taking out the device and then he wakes up and he's totally fine because that's who he is snaps back to reality and then he gets captured and then the events transpire with lady true and the cyclops gang like at the end of the season right it's funny though because during the white night while he's existing as Cal instead of Dr. Manhattan. He doesn't know who he is, really. He can't access his powers, but apparently he inadvertently uses them on the night of the White Knight. In a moment of fight-or-flight desperation. Yeah, he teleports an armed assailant away from Angela. Eventually, it's how the 7th Cavalry comes to know that Dr. Manhattan is back on Earth, which sets basically the entire thing into motion. As for Vietnam, I was trying to be what people wanted me to be. A soldier, a superhero, a savior. I try to do the right thing, and if it's any consolation, I do regret it. Haven't you ever done anything you knew you were going to regret? Then will you have dinner with me tomorrow night? 
Who's the next character? I was going to touch on Judd Crawford a little bit, since he's kind of the... I do not have a theme for Judd. Uh-oh. But we should touch on Judd. Yeah. He is the chief of the Tulsa PD. He's kind of a cowboy sheriff, and he comes from a long line of Oklahoma sheriffs. They flush his past out a little bit in the PDPD articles that follow the show online. He has a very close relationship with the Keens. Joe Keen, who we'll talk about in a second, and the senior Keen, who was initially in charge of the the bill or the act that made vigilantism outlawed from the 70s. And their families, according to this new expanded canon for the show, they go way back in their history of each with the KKK and Cyclops and in this modern world, the 7th Cavalry. Just a history of bad dudes. But he comes off in the first episode as a very friendly figure, and he has gotten very close with Angela and Cal. Almost like a father figure. Yeah, kind of like a father or older brother figure. He is one of only a few people that survived the White Knight with Angela. And he sort of uses that opportunity to get close to him. I don't know if he had always intended to kind of use that relationship yeah. in this way. But he is undercover as a nice guy when he's actually a, a Klansman. And he's murdered by Will Reeves in the first episode of the show because Will Reeves knows who he is. We could say that Judd is killed by Will, but also inadvertently and accidentally because of Angela. Everything is very connected. In the past, Dr. Manhattan asks Will, why do you kill Judd Crawford? And then Will Reeves says, who's Judd Crawford? And because Dr. Manhattan asked Will that because Angela asked him to, it was Angela that accidentally was the instigator of Will researching who Judd Crawford is, leading to him murdering him. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Hey, there's an egg reference. What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. What year was that? It was It was before Judd Crawford died. Was it like right before? It was before Dr. Manhattan put the device in his head. So we know it was however many years previous to Cali Abar being And that's Cali when Bar. Will was still living in Nelson Gardner's mansion because he inherited all that. Captain Metropolis left it all to Will. We should talk about Will. The Will Reeves? Yeah. Born in 1914. Crazy. He was a young boy, only seven years old. When we first see him in the show, I think the very first thing we see is the cold open of the Black Wall Street Massacre, right? Mm -hmm. Which is... An actual event. An actual event that, that happened. very few people know about. Mm -hmm. And... I didn't know it happened. Yeah, I had no idea because they don't teach you that in schools. Mm -mm. And I think uh, most of the last hundred years, I think at least locally, they spent actively trying to, you know, keep it under wraps just because it is such a... And what was the event, Gabe? What was Black Wall Street? Yeah. Um, well, it was a very affluent neighborhood in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, that was basically razed to the ground. Millions of dollars in damage, not to even speak of the hundreds of lives that were lost. Essentially, the KKK went on a murder spree mm -hmm. and just started killing people over the course of 48 hours. They were just dragging people out of homes and looting and murdering. And the event... When you see it as the opening of Watchmen, uh, along with Will Reeves, who is seven at the time, it's extremely jarring and terrifying. Yeah, it's like a classic HBO big battle scene, but we're opening the show on this moment that actually happened in history. Yeah. So it's very surreal. My initial thought when I first watched it was, this is crazy, but this is 
you know, a show about fiction and superheroes. Mm-hmm. But because it is like an alternate timeline for our own history, they did pull a lot of real world events into the show. Mm-hmm. And once you look it up afterwards, you realize it was all real and it's crazy. Yeah, you do follow Will Reeves through the destruction of the neighborhood and his parents are trying to get him out of there without dying. His father, who had served in the First World War, he's I think he's in uniform in the scene. And then as they're escaping, they're blown up, and Will wakes up later that night in a field, a little throwback to Lost, and he wakes up, and he's the only one alive, save for a, a baby next to him, who I think ends up becoming his wife. And he's just standing there amidst the devastation, with everything on fire behind him. It's a haunting mm-hmm. thing to see. Mm-hmm. So that sort of defines who he is. And over the next 20 years, he grows up, moves to New York, becomes a cop. And uh, he's a very angry person. But also a very justice-oriented person. Yeah. He, just like his granddaughter, Angela, is very justice-oriented and wants to do what's right. And so he joins the force and unveils this vast and insidious conspiracy Mm -hmm. called Cyclops, which is part of the KKK. And some members of the force don't like him because he's black and they try to lynch him and he takes the noose that was put around his neck and then he puts a mask on and then becomes this masked vigilante that yeah that essentially inspired all of vigilanteism in the whole watchman story he was the first yeah he was the first caped costumed adventurer called hooded justice and he was in the original Minutemen. in 39 is when nelson gardner got everyone together i think all because they were inspired by this guy, who I don't think Will ever intended to be this symbol. He sort of just stumbled into, over the course of that night, he found himself in a position where he was trying to defend some people who were being mugged. And he had the hood and he had the noose and it, it became his iconic look. Yeah. But over the course of time, he had to hide his identity because he was so worried about being found out as a black man that he used white makeup around his eyes to conceal his identity even further. And that's why everyone thought he was a white dude over the years. And there was a lot of people that bought into the conspiracy that he was that German wrestler in the 50s who was murdered. And then there was a lot of misinformation, conjecture on who he was as a person. People thought he was a Nazi sympathizer. And And he eventually pushes away his wife and his son, and they move away, and his son eventually becomes the father of Angela Abar, so Angela's his granddaughter. He already said that, but just reiterating. And then he grows up eventually to just, you know, become an old man in a mansion, like you said. He seems to... Old man in a mansion. His story is really a tragic one. He's alienated everyone who was ever close to him Mm -hmm. because he sort of became more about his mission rather than about his family. And his wife didn't want his son to become like him. Yeah, and then Dr. Manhattan shows up one day and says, why did you kill Dred Crawford? And then sets him on this path to just kill a leader of Cyclops because he was fighting Cyclops his whole life. This was his opportunity to get his last great revenge against the people. And they were developing, like, mind control technology. I think his story is one of the most compelling stories because he finally gets the revenge, the satisfaction that he's been kind of yearning for his whole life, the peace of mind, so to speak. Yeah, enacted by Lady True of all people. I was sitting in this exact spot almost a hundred years ago. This was a silent movie house before the... Built it back up. My mama played the piano right over there. It burnt too. Last thing I saw before my world ended was Baz Reeves, the Black Marshal of Oklahoma. Fifteen feet tall and flickering black and white. Trust in the law, he said. And I did. 
that took his name after Tulsa Byrne. He was my hero. That's why I became a cop. Then I realized there was a reason Bass Reeves hid his face. Who's next? Well, we could talk about Mr. Cyclops himself, Joe Keen. I mean, since he's sort of the figurehead for that. I also don't have a theme for him, so. Oh, no. We could write one, something silly. Hey, I'm Joe. I'm going to kill you. Young Joe Keen Jr. You're, you're unsure of his motives the whole time, and then it's revealed that he is behind everything, that he's been using the conflict between the police of Tulsa and this 7th Cavalry hidden Cyclops organization. He's using all that discord to elevate his position in society and he i think he says he has future plans to be president even he's like a mustache twirling villain by the end of the show but it's his plan to capture dr manhattan and essentially become the new dr manhattan he even has the stylish black lightning underpants he's ready to go by uh, episode nine they're ready to beam him up uh but he is like judd in a long line of white supremacists and his father was the one who enacted the keen act and made outlaws i think that's actually his father i didn't realize this at the time but i looked back on it in the wheelchair the old white man when uh, at the very end when yeah. lady true rose some <laughs> that's the senior keen who, oh. who was like crazy behind the scenes beforehand yeah and the keen act was in the 70s it was the legislation that made vigilantism illegal which eventually led to the capture and rehabilitation if you can call it that of uh lori juspizik you're wrong about cyclops we're not racist we're about restoring balance in those times when our country forgets the principles upon which it was founded because the scales have tipped way too far and it is extremely difficult to be a white man in america right now So Lori's back this time around. She's an older woman now. And she spent the time between comic and show. She spent half of it continuing to be a vigilante. At the end of the comic, we see her sort of right off into the sunset with Dan Dryberg, who is Night Owl 2. And they're kind of lovers, uh, partners. And they continue for 10 years to fight crime in costume. And she takes on sort of the mantle of her father, who is the comedian. Yeah, not only the... And his last name, which is Blake. Yeah, she takes on all of him. She takes his name. She takes the idea of wearing a mask and using weaponry, as the comedian was famous for his brutal tactics. But she also takes from her father his nihilistic outlook on life. And she, over the course of time, becomes progressively more and more... Cynical. Cynical of the world. That's the perfect word, yeah. So in 95, 96, she's caught and apprehended by the FBI with Dan. They were trying to stop the Oklahoma bombings. And I think they succeeded in that universe. But she was apprehended. They asked her to speak, just to spill the beans, and she did. Dan said nothing, and he goes to jail for the rest of time, apparently. We never see Night Owl again. Sad. What we see is legacy live on through his tech. Anyway, Lori talks. She joins the FBI. She tells them all about Ozymandias' 
what he's done. And she becomes a vigilante hunter for the next 20 years, tracking down, sometimes just murdering in cold blood, people that wear capes and try to stop crime on the street. And by the time we see her in the Watchmen series, she is uh, a very different person than she was in the comic. Still pretty, but very uh, cynical, like you said. So in this story, she's trying to track down who killed Judd Crawford. Yeah, they bring her into the fold. And she comes in kind of as like the veteran detective and, and she meets Angela Abar and Wade Tillman. Vigilantism, it's illegal. So it would be super smart for federal law enforcement to tip you off that this bank was about to be robbed. Of course, you couldn't know you were being set up. Otherwise, you wouldn't walk right into their trap, right? Wade Tillman. We should talk about Wade. One of the motley cast of characters that Lori comes to know in Oklahoma is Wade Tillman, who is another operative on the Tulsa PD, one of the partners of Angela Abar. And he's kind of in the spirit of how Rorschach used to be, as far as the look and feeling of this character. He's got a cool mask. It is pretty cool. I can't remember what the material was, but it's entirely reflective. Yeah. He's called Looking Glass. He's more like a walking mirror rather than a looking glass. And his whole thing is that he's like a human lie detector. Yeah. The Wade story is really interesting. We see him in his flashback as a teenager during 1985, which is when what they call the DIE at this point in time, they called the Dimensional Incursion Event, which is where Ozzy teleported giant squid onto New York and blew it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wade was there, literally. And he was at the time, I think he was a, with some religion. It was like a Davidian or something, Branch Davidian. And he was there when the thing exploded and he suffered a lot of trauma. He was actually in a, in a fun house at a carnival. Some top-knot girl was trying to seduce him, but they were just messing with him. And she takes his clothes and leaves him in the maze yeah. and runs. Even before the bomb goes off, he's in this moment having sort of a crisis of faith because he's like, I was just rused by this beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. So he's already going through stuff when he walks out and discovers that a bomb has just gone off in, in New York. And he walks out on squid is dropped. The proverbial bomb. And this, again, is the main delineation, I think, between Zack Snyder's film and the original comic. We don't see the squid drop in Zack Snyder's film. And so here is the first time we actually get to see the squid in like a live action kind of... Uh, in all its tentacle glory. Motion picture kind of way. Yeah. Um, and it's super cool looking. And they should have done it for Zack Snyder's film. Zack... But yeah, Wade walks out and the psychic blast has devastated the city. Uh, he was somehow protected by the Hall of Mirrors in the funhouse. Mm. And he is now dealing with what he just went through with the woman. And now he's suffering from this PTSD directly caused by the blast. Not just the figurative trauma, but quite literally the psychic blast has affected his brain chemistry because that's just how it worked. Mm-hmm. The people that survived the blast in New York, the closer you were to the blast, if you weren't killed, you were still affected by the psychic energy that was let off. So he's suffering quite literally for the next 30 years, and he goes through a lot dealing with his PTSD. He's sort of in his own way, like you said, a Rorschach kind of damaged individual. And he finds love at one point, and they are estranged now, kind of. They... He, he's not able to maintain a relationship because of both instances that we talked about. He can no longer trust people mm-hmm. or become, you know, intimate rather with people. So he lives alone, sort of in a bunker 
and he is constantly protecting himself with that material he uses for his mask because it's supposedly psychic proof or that's just like putting tinfoil in your head or something yeah it keeps him safe from his mind from the aliens yeah from this event that he everything he does in his life is according to that principle of trying to avoid this phenomenon that happens because he's just lived a life of fear ever since the blast occurred yeah and that fear is inadvertently nurtured by squid falls that happen periodically i think the record in the universe was 25 times a year uh, at random places around the world ozymandias is still sending little baby squid to maintain that illusion that it was an extra extra dimensional threat to preserve that very delicate peace that it caused around the world just gonna ask you a series of questions answer them honestly and you can go home how long have you lived in tulsa which brings us to the man himself ozymandias adrian veidt the man who caused all these things to happen sort of yep the man who caused peace and devastation together things didn't work out the way he wanted like you were saying earlier his whole plan to lead the world into the next utopian age what do they call it the millennium yeah his new fad after nostalgia was called millennium and his plan after the shellacking of new york was to lead the world and millennium was a part of this movement Mm -hmm. into utopia into Mm -hmm. this great global peace but everyone you said threw away their technology out of fear because of yeah despite adrian's great foresight and intelligence he was not able to foresee this effect that his actions would cause maybe he overestimated people but the giant squid on new york people were afraid that it was somehow this ushering in of technology around the 1970s 80s 90s they were afraid that that was what had caused it so according to this new canon most of the world sort of rejected this technological age sending it backwards a few decades and all that advancement was sort of put on hold like electric cars everything Mm -hmm. computers like we have today Mm -hmm. it was like it was a scare for the world Mm -hmm. so there was no utopia like he would have wanted there was peace but there wasn't an ushering in of a new age like he wanted so he was kind of depressed for a time and this is when dr manhattan shows up to him and this is in the conversation where he gives him the device but dr manhattan also tells him that dr manhattan spent some time on jupiter kind of creating his own world that dr manhattan saw fit where there were these creations with these people that were kind of mirroring adam and eve but they were more simple folk who didn't really have malice or jealousy or any kind of evil in their heart and manhattan said he kind of got over it but to adrian veidt who had been kind of living in a dismal abyss of his own making thought that this sounded like perfection paradise (laughs) so he asked dr manhattan to send him there and so dr manhattan zaps him there instantly and then he spends i think eight years there yeah the better part of the decade yeah he was craving not just utopia but he was craving the recognition for bringing it for bringing it about so he thought this place sounded like paradise because he would be functionally the god there yeah so yeah he's he got there and pretty quickly adrian came to realize that this was not paradise and he was bored out of his mind yeah because when john osterman was on europa trying to create life like you said he couldn't really replicate what made humans so special so adrian obviously wasn't going to be thrilled with it either he finds it quite dull after a while and he spends the rest of the decade trying to escape his journey and i didn't even think of this at the time sort of parallels the curse of the black freighter comic 
from the original Watchmen comic, where this guy is sort of marooned, yeah. and he's trying to fight his way back to society. Yeah. And so you see him, it's really unclear what he's doing. Just so everyone knows, because we didn't even talk about this in the last podcast, the Black Freighter is a comic book within the comic book of Watchmen. Very meta that a random person on the street is reading and they cut to it every now and then and show a couple panels from it to just kind of tell a story within a story that mirrors and works in a parallel way along with the story of Watchmen. Yeah, it's about a guy who sort of becomes what he feared and what he wanted to destroy in the process of trying to get back to what he knew and what he loved. Yeah. So Adrian Veidt had a daughter that he rejected and in the course of being exiled in a way for years on Jupiter, he basically creates an SOS sign in hopes that his daughter would be smart enough to send something to see this SOS sign on one of the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. When young Lady True came to him in 2008 to tell him that she was his daughter, he didn't know she existed. Her mother was a servant of Ozymandias in the 90s, I think, Mm -hmm. or in, in the 80s. She injected herself with his sperm, and then she ran away back to Vietnam. So Lady True grew up without her father, and she realizes Ozymandias is her father. He confronts her, and he rejects her. But she made an offhand mention that she was going to send these probes into space, and that's how he knows. Ten years later, he has to make this sign so that she'll see it. Using the the bodies of the clones, like you said, he made the SOS signal on the surface of this planetoid. And she finds him and then spends a few years trying to get him back. She freezes him in kind of uh, this gold-plated... Gold carbonite. Carbonite kind of way, like, like in Star Wars. Most honorable game warden, I beg your pardon, sir. But you seem to suspect me of criminal activities, as if I were a dastardly forest brigand, or worse, some sort of republic serial villain. All best wishes and encouragements, Adrian Veidt. And that brings us to Lady True. Yeah. Who should summarize really the story that we've been telling. Last but not least. Lady True, like Gabe just said, is the daughter of Adrian Veidt because her mom, who was a worker that really just wanted to get back at Adrian Veidt for being a sociopath and cold-hearted bastard. And and he was so arrogant that he kept all this frozen sperm behind this lockbox that she knew about. So she stole some sperm and implanted herself essentially and lady true was created um and she is now sort of replaced adrian Veidt on earth as being the smartest most intelligent person on the planet and she is creating this device throughout the whole series no one knows what it's for they call it the millennium clock right yeah the millennium clock which mirrors that of the doomsday clock in the original series and they just say it's gonna be some kind of advanced clock and no one really knows what it is actually going to do but essentially it's the machine that is going to take Dr. Manhattan's powers in the by the end of the story. And so she is pulling all the strings and similarly to how Adrian Veidt did in the original Watchmen, she's in cahoots with Will Reeves, who's the Hood of Justice, the old man who's Angela's grandpa. She's in cahoots with Keen and Cyclops and the 7th Calvary. She was using them to get Dr. Manhattan to come out. That's right. So 
in the end of the story, in an effort to kind of prove that she is the smartest person on the planet and even smarter than her father, she unfreezes her father, who has been still frozen in this gold wrap just for chilling. three years. Just vibing. As a statue. In her garden. In her garden. <laughs> she unfreezes Adrian Veidt Ozymandias, and then she forces him to be the witness of her killing Cyclops, the leaders of Cyclops, and then taking Dr. Manhattan's powers, becoming not only the most intelligent person on the planet, but also the most powerful person on the planet as the new superwoman, just like Dr. Manhattan is a superman. Yeah. And that doesn't go to plan. So many prayers unanswered. I own and operate thousands of Manhattan booths around the world. You wouldn't believe what people ask him for. They beg and beg and beg for his help. Beg for him to come down from the heavens and make things better. But he ignores them, every single one. Why doesn't it go to plan, Stephen? <laughs> it seems pretty foolproof. Adrian invites like, this is bullshit. This ain't the shit. <laughs> and then he gets teleported. Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, Laurie, Blake, Jospisek, and Wade Tillman all get transported to Adrian's lair that was from the original Watchmen. Yeah. And where he's been sending the squid on and off for every single year. It was John's final act was to teleport them there because that's just how things had to be. So he teleports them away and... I don't think Lady True even really notices they're gone. She's no. just getting in the machine. It's happening. We're all excited to be here. Yeah. And so... Ozymandias, an attempt to stop his nutso daughter, is like, the only thing I can do is send a bunch of frozen squid, <laughs> like bullets, raining like hellfire. That's all I can do, chief. We yeah. got squid in the freezer. This is the only thing I can think of. And so he sends them through this portal, and the portal opens up above this place in Tulsa and starts raining hellfire. And then after that event, and it kills everyone, Dr. Manhattan is gone, everyone's gone. Angela, she was given warning to run. She was told to go find cover. Yeah. The, well, the final thing that happens to Angela, when John is vaporized, it emits a blast that kind of throws her. And then right before the squid fall happens, she, yeah, she got like a phone call. Oh, that's right. BN picks it up and she's like, it's for you. <laughs> Lori was like, run. And Angela takes off. Adrian programmed that squid to not thaw out in the sky. And it's just frozen. The squid function like bullets. Yeah. And they just annihilate everything. And half of Tulsa is just destroyed. And then before we see the final scene where Angela eats the egg and potentially takes on Dr. Manhattan's powers, we get a really nice scene with Lori and Wade arresting Adrian Vite, And he finally gets the justice that he didn't get in the original Watchmen. And then also, in a way, the recognition. And it is this kind of huge justice moment. It's justice for Lori's character arc. It's justice for Wade's character arc, who was petrified based essentially because of what this man had done. And then it's also justice in a way for Adrian Veidt because he's finally, at least someone is, he's going to go down for being the mastermind behind all of this, these events that have transpired over the last 30 plus years. So everyone gets this justice in the end. Those characters' arcs kind of are finished. Catharsis. <laughs> yeah. And so that's essentially what happens in the 2019 Watchmen. Yeah. And again, thank you, Damon Lindelof. And thank you for the amazing experience and ride. It was wild. By the way, a lot of what we said, you don't really find out until the last two episodes. So for the first seven episodes, you're stuck wondering what is going on. Yeah. You, you see pieces of a puzzle that's not even close to being formed. It's just scattered about the room. 
Yep. But that's just like Alan Moore's comic. You had hints and little pieces of information that you'd have to be really paying attention to. And that even in a first or second or third read, not all of those things would become clear to you. So, I mean, that was kind of a long exposition of us to kind of retell the whole story through the characters' points of view. One thing we should mention as well, because we didn't as we were going along, is the acting is really good. And uh, we want to give a shout out to the actors really quick. First and foremost, Regina King killed it as Angela Abar and Sister Knight as like a darker shade of herself. Uh, Yaya Abdul-Mutin as Cal Abar brought a wonderful depth to that character as her husband, but also when he turned into Dr. Manhattan, he got to showcase an entirely different sort of character. And acting. Yeah. How to act as a god. And he got that sort of emotionless. Did you prefer his to uh, Billy Crudup? Yeah, I did, I think. Yeah. He did really well. Uh, His speech. It's really just about the speech to me. The makeup on him was a little uncanny, but that's uh, beside the point. Tim Blake Nelson, wonderful job as Wade Tillman slash Looking Glass, the paranoid, traumatic individual that he is. He was great. Yeah. He's always good. I loved his accent. I think that's mostly just his own voice, but he he really channeled it into that character. It was great. Don Johnson was Judd Crawford. Yeah. He didn't really have to do a lot with his own voice either, but Don Johnson's always good. He's kind of been around for a while. And who, who was Joe Keen Jr.? James Wolk. James Wolk. I hadn't seen him before, but he was so, I think the word is smarmy. He's very charming and yet, and swaggy but intrinsically untrustworthy, I think, from the get-go. I thought he made a great villain. I I would like to see more of his villainy. There were two actors, or really three actors, but two main actors that played Will Reeves. The older 105-year-old Will Reeves is Louis Gossett Jr. Yeah. He was fantastic. Not actually 104 years old, but he did well with the age. The young Will Reeves is played by young, he's like maybe in his 30s, is played by a man named... Jovan Adepo. He played Denzel Washington's son in Fences, which he was amazing in. And he's also really amazing in this role. We see the kid version of Will Reeves a couple times, like the, f- the seven-year-old. Played by Danny Boyd Jr. Yeah. And Lady True was played by Hong Chow. She, I wasn't familiar with her work. She was great. Yeah. I, I feel like I had seen her in something else. I think similar to Joe Keen, you could always tell there was some sort of ulterior motive every time she was speaking on screen. Honestly, she portrayed Adrian Veidt how I wished that Matthew Good would have portrayed him. Really kind of just very smart, creepy. The arrogance was palpable. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to clone my own mother kind of arrogance. Yeah, I am become God. And I think Adrian said it wonderfully when he said, no person who desires to become a God should be allowed to be one, yeah. And then Laurie Blake, uh, Jess Pizek, Silk Spectre 2, was played by... Gene Smart. Gene Smart. Yeah, she's great. I think that was one of my favorite castings. And I it yeah. didn't initially ring true for me. I think this is probably what a lot of people felt when they saw Luke Skywalker in episode eight, because they're like, that's not where we left that character. But I think it really gave a whole lot of depth to this series 30 years down the line to see how cynical she'd become and how she'd sort of followed in her father's footsteps. Yeah. And it was also really strange how she wanted to get rid of the Jedi forever. <laughs> she hated vigilantes. And then last but not least. Definitely not least. Probably last but most best. Best casting. Is Jeremy Irons as Adrian Veidt slash Ozymandias. And he was the one I was most excited about knowing that he was cast going into the show. Uh, Just because he's got that intelligence that I was talking about that Matthew Good struggled with. Yeah, that's sort of. uh, Struggled to portray. 
Jeremy Irons naturally seems to exude that sort of aura of both intelligence and power when he inhabits the space. And they really let him chew the scenery in this show. He spent most of it just kind of screwing around on Europa, uh, role-playing as royalty. And he did great. It was awesome. Every scene he was in was one of my favorite scenes. He's fantastic. I agree. Um, But one of the most interesting things for me is the underlying through line that Damon wanted to tell one of the politically charged reasons that they were creating this story was racism. And I thought it was extremely interesting that we never actually saw the original John Osterman as Dr. Manhattan. His face was never shown. White John Osterman? Yeah, we only saw Cal Abar inhabit the blue version of Dr. Manhattan. Essentially, I think it's Damon's way, the creator's way of this series, essentially taking the character that is most like God, the most powerful character in the series, and taking them from what used to be a uh, white person and made this godlike character black. And then in the end, also potentially taking that a little further, maybe even a black woman. And I think that's just as imagery, as a metaphor even, uh, even as an example, is saying a lot, is making a clear statement about what this Watchmen series is standing for. It's an interesting perspective. I didn't even think about it that far extrapolated, but it's, that's true. The voice was very consistent throughout the whole thing. And it was beautiful. And someone said this better than me, but the whole point is to rethink the biases in the stories America tells about power, violence, and race. I loved that. And it's something that's so ingrained in us, too, that we sometimes don't even realize what's happening, the, the things we say and do. Yeah, a great example is Black Wall Street. Yeah. That whole event in America and how it's not something that we is commonly known that we learn about in yeah in school and and the fact that these things are still going on today um yeah not quite on that scale but no all over the place aspects of this i yeah. mean during this time of an already crazy time with the pandemic and you know the domination of covid-19 the reign of covid yeah for some reason people still find the need to be divided in a time that we should be united and hate and be racist and murder people that are not like them. And we had an example of this back in February and it just hit the internet a couple weeks ago of Ahmad Arbery in Atlanta, in Georgia. He was just jogging and some people shot him down in a neighborhood. And not only was he murdered, but the murderers were essentially free men for another month or so or two until the internet exploded and were like, hey, you need to put these people away. away. <laughs> Once you go viral, it's hard to you know hide something. And I just read about today, another young woman named Brianna Taylor was asleep with her boyfriend in their house and they were invaded by a bunch of policemen and she was murdered gunned down in her own house in the middle of the night and her boyfriend who was trying to protect her and him shot back and he ended up getting prosecuted and it was just released in the news today that he was finally exonerated and set free yeah it's mind-blowing to me that this is still going on on a very very personal note i was telling you this the other day but when i was in elementary school i was taught and this is probably a, a very whitewashed way of looking at things, but I was taught that racism didn't exist anymore and that Martin Luther King Jr. had, had Won the fixed battle. it. He fixed it. Yeah, he solved racism. And I was taught that in elementary school. I can remember seeing the teacher say that. 
that is literally what she said. She said, this is why we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Because he fixed racism. That he died for that cause. So that racism no longer exists in America. I think the point in all of this, the point of this story of Watchmen, and also that we should all be facing and realizing today in the quote unquote woke culture that you referred to earlier, is that we we start to acknowledge the the actual history that has transpired and we need to we need to grasp that and actually we have to acknowledge it so that you can heal let it go yeah exactly we need to figure out a way to move beyond that in our own thinking uh, culturally and internally and individually we need to move past that by acknowledging we we have to acknowledge like that quote i just read said to rethink the biases and the stories that America tells because America, I think has told one story. I was told that story that racism doesn't exist anymore. And we, especially in privileged parts of the country, we grow up thinking that it's one way only to come to find when we are a little bit older that it's another way. And we need to stop trying to cover those things up or diminish the severity of the events that have transpired. Yeah, or else these things will probably keep happening. And that's something that I love about Damon Lindelof. The the story that he set out to tell here was to just point that out a little bit and try to point out those flaws in the thinking of the majority. And in the same way that I think Alan Moore was trying to point out the flaws in the thinking of the majority during the Cold War back in the 80s. And, And that's why I think that this story and this 2019 HBO Watchmen series is so genius is because not only is it standing for something, but it's being challenging and dangerous and courageous in a way that we don't often see in our culture. And that could potentially maybe prompt someone to actually start reconsidering their belief system. And when art does that, that's powerful. I wish we saw more. And it also, again, homages and plays off so well of the original comic, which makes it so genius. But Yeah, it's a big risk to confront truth like that, mm-hmm. especially in that medium. I mean, a lot of people were turned off just by the first couple episodes because of how they were handling the socio-political themes between the police and the 7th Cavalry. Yeah. But that is what you have to do. And that's I think that's the highest form of art is when it not only reveals something that's true like that but really forces you to deal with it Mm. by putting it in front of you like that so yeah hats off to Lindelof and his team yeah and that is what makes it art isn't it yeah in the end is it's not just another tv series it's not just a a season of a cw show i mean this is a meaningful yeah there was a message there is a clear message that should have long-lasting impact on our culture if people are paying attention it was, I think, Barack Obama in 2019 put out a list of all of his favorite things to come out in the previous decade, but Watchmen was on it. The HBO really? Watchmen series was on that list of his favorite movies. <laughs> and he's like, even though it's not a movie, it's definitely one of the best things to come out of the decade. Yeah. And another quick little thing is while the symbol of the original Watchmen comic is this happy face with a strip of blood on it that speaks to the cynicism and the scarred nature of America at the time, the symbol of this Watchmen is an egg, which is why we were talking about eggs earlier. Yeah, man. (laughs) Delicious. And eggs represent new life, layers, hope, hope in a way because of that new life. 
And I think that was also an interesting move that Damon Lindelof, while not only trying to pay homage to the original Watchmen, was also trying to bring hope to Watchmen and maybe even hope to our culture today. Yeah. Damon's got a lot of experience writing incredibly damaged characters who spend the whole show or movie healing, and Watchmen's no exception. I mean, you take the symbolism. It's subtle a lot of the time, but you have Angela at the very end consuming the egg. It's pretty right on the nose. Her and all the other characters becoming new people, essentially changing for the better. Mm -hmm. So it is cool to see Moore's work as something that is very scathing rebuke and kind of a hopeless piece on Mm -hmm. humanity. And then Lindelof take that and evolve it and turn it on its head. And now we're making strides in the right direction. Maybe if you look at Moore as the creator of the original and Lindelof as the creator of this new one, that you could essentially even make the jump that Lindelof maybe is just a more hopeful person than Moore is. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I would assume so. Considering what we know about Alan Moore. I don't think Lindelof claims to be a magician. No. Practicing the dark arts in his backyard. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. Alan Moore is a genius, but Lindelof, I think, yeah, Moore, he, we know you're listening Alan yeah, Moore, <laughs> to this you, podcast. You, you retired and have nothing else to do. But I think you're right. And that's why I said that a lot of the time Damon deals with these incredibly damaged characters finding healing. Yeah. It's cool. When will you find healing, Gabe? Series finale. <laughs> of your life? Yeah. Many seasons from now. It's a process, Steven. Don't rush it. You can't rush art. It just happens. You can if you go to therapy. Yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> that's um. That's Watchmen. Watchmen. What's next for the five listeners that we have? <laughs> Probably something smaller. Yeah, we we got this idea, which I'm excited about. I think it's a good idea. That we start having these uh, shorter podcast episodes instead of taking these deep dives into things that Gabe and I love so much to just go over our reactions and responses to the content that we are consuming on a weekly basis. So hopefully we're just going to start putting out some shorter, more easier to consume episodes. And we'll still do the deep dives when we feel it's necessary, for sure for Watchmen caliber television and film. Although that new Tenet trailer, did you see that? Yes. I am pumped. Any last words? Nothing ever ends. Since we recorded this podcast, before we even recorded this podcast, we've been wanting to do this particular Watchmen series for... Since the beginning. Since the beginning of the podcast. And we knew that racism was prevalent, and then COVID kind of took over for a while, being in the spotlight. And then there have been multiple atrocious racist acts. And since we recorded this podcast, within like the three days that we recorded it and started to edit it, uh, there was another one. So on top of Brianna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, another violent lynching via the cops in Minneapolis. Well, not really a lynching. Can you call it a lynching if it's not a lynching? I, mean, it was essentially I would just call it a public execution. A, basically a lynching. I mean, the I guess it is like a modern day lynching. Happened to George Floyd and um, it's becoming, it still is very heavy. Everyone is talking about it right now. Um, in Minneapolis, there are people flooding the streets it's rioting yeah rioting and uh, not just there it's uh really spreading 
across the nation as these things do more and more all the time. Because people are outraged um, for a good reason. Uh, there really is no reason to kill anyone just for a normal arrest. And but there's always like um, a way to spin it from the other side and say, oh, this is why this sort of thing happened, like even in the case of Ahmed. But specifically with George Floyd, there was literally no even remote reason that this would reasonably be something that would happen, right? Because mm-hmm. the police were called because of a forgery allegation, and mm-hmm. then it ends with this man being killed on the sidewalk. By one of the cops having his knee on his Yeah, neck. something that you're not trained to do. Yeah. It was a lack of training, if anything. So it's and, just pure and simple, yeah. uh, you know, prejudice. Yeah. I mean, even if I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit, but even if that cop says, I'm not racist, there's a reason that they put him in handcuffs in the first place. There's a reason that he threw him on the ground and had his knee on his neck. And I think it's become apparent to everyone that looks at it and because and there's video of it all over online that it's wrong and it's apparent and that's why people are rioting there's a just a, a heavy a heavy heavy sense of injustice in the air surrounding this yeah and it's really just like you said not just in the last few months but over the the course of american civilization it's history just been, like it, it just keeps adding onto the top like, yeah like you're playing a giant game of Jenga and at some point it's going to crumble. Yeah. And so really us bringing this up and talking about this at the end and, and we talked a little bit about awareness, but it's, it's really all that it is is Watchmen not only was good because of what it was attributing to the original comic, but it also tackled a very heavy relevant issue in socio and political spheres right now. And that's what makes it good. But it's also calling into question things that need to be called into question. And yeah, I mean, not to say that Gabe and I are the people that should be spurring that on as well, but it's important. We, yeah. I think we, we both recognize its importance and we definitely don't want to stand for that kind of injustice as well. And so if you're listening to this and you might be thinking this is just an interesting spin off of a comic book, uh, it's a lot more than that. Yeah, this show, uh, I mean, we talked about how Damon Lindelof was inspired by what he was reading and hearing at the time Mm -hmm. to use that as a basis for the story in the series. And so it really is a product of its time. It's the product that is, you know, at the culmination of things that have been happening Mm -hmm. in this country for a while, for a long time, for the entire time that it's been a country. So it should should weigh on you. It should be something that you're thinking about. So hopefully uh, hearing these words is, you know, it's something that you think about too, listener. <laughs> yeah. Just a level of awareness. The The more that you could do as an individual, I think, to educate yourself and become more aware and put yourself, your own desires and your feelings aside and just try to soak up the information around you. That's the best thing I think that you could do, that we could do. Yeah. Especially if you are from a privileged background. Yeah. It can be hard to put yourself sometimes, uh, metaphorically in another person's shoes. Yeah. But that's something you should think about. Like what if I was this person, you Mm -hmm. know, in this community living with under this weight of history. So anyway, and that's the question that Damon tackled. And that's why 
on top of everything, I mean, it's a brilliant series and just goes to show that Damon has been an advocate for this a lot longer than even the the most recent events. You know, he's he was trying to expose something here that goes all the way back into the the veins of America's history, like you said. Into the annals of human nature. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the amount of times that I laugh and I can't even respond to you is is there's a lot. There's so many times. It's so upsetting. <laughs> it's 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 frustrating. <laughs> All right. Well, um we just wanted to pay tribute. Um people are saying say his name. That's the the hashtag online right now to create awareness. You know, we only live as long as the last person who remembers us. So George Floyd, you will not be forgotten.